Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Migrations. I'm your host, Nisha Modi. Before I get started on today's heavy topic, I'd love it if you could head over to the podcast and give it a five-star rating. This is what helps people find migrations so more listeners can hear these stories. This episode comes with a content warning. This episode is about suicide. I interview three individuals who identify as Asian and an Asian therapist about their experience with suicide and about what suicide prevention can look like. I think this is such an important topic, but it's also a very heavy one. So please do take care of yourself. Choose to listen to as much or as little as you'd like. Call a friend. Have a snack. Drink some water. Snuggle in your favorite blanket or with the pet. Do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself first. We talk about the challenges with suicide hotlines in this episode. However, they are still a resource you can use. Please text NAMI at 741-741 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 if you need support. When I decided to do this episode, I wanted to make sure I chatted with people who had different experiences with the topic. Perhaps it's something that they thought about, or maybe they have someone close to them who experienced suicidal ideation or died by suicide. And honestly, I just wanted to learn more about it because I'm pretty ignorant. I've never had any suicidal ideation myself. However, last year, I did lose a friend I used to work with to suicide. This definitely rocked me on top of hearing about someone I went to grad school with who died by suicide toward the beginning of quarantine last March. For people like me who are relatively ignorant to the whys of suicide and what we can do about it, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to hear stories, and I wanted to know how it showed up in different Asian communities. So I decided to find out. I reached out to people in a Facebook group that centers Asians and mental health. I put a call out to my Instagram family, and I reached out to a therapist who practices from a decolonized approach. While this episode can't tell you everything about this topic, I hope it helps you have a better understanding about the topic, the people, and how all of us play a part in suicide prevention. First, I talked to Monica. Monica is 27 years old and lives near Philadelphia. They use they-them pronouns and are also questioning their pronouns. Monica is a freelance musician and teacher. Their parents are Chinese immigrants, and they're the oldest of two. Earlier in life, they were diagnosed with depression and anxiety and then diagnosed with borderline personality disorder after being hospitalized a few times. Monica has also been diagnosed with bipolar 1 by one doctor and bipolar 2 by another doctor. They have also self-diagnosed themselves as autistic. I asked Monica about their experience with mental illness and how it relates to suicide. My main diagnosis is borderline personality disorder and BPD is underdiagnosed. It's very heavily stigmatized. It resembles what a lot of people think bipolar disorder is, which is where you just have really rapid mood swings. Bipolar disorder is uh, its actually defined as three to four times a year that you have these mood shifts, and it's a lot more like on a macro level. BPD is on a micro level. You could be on top of the world and then in five seconds flat, you could be completely suicidal. And then like literally 10 minutes later, just be fine again and not be suicidal. And um, I think when you're a kid, you don't have as much freedom as when you're an adult. And so being autistic also, uh, when things change in my schedule or when routines change, it really throws me for a loop. And so... As a kid, I think a lot of the time 
something would change, it would be out of my control, it might have to do with my parents, it might not have to do with my parents, it might have to do with school, which was very important to my parents, and that change would just be overwhelming for me, and it caused me to be suicidal pretty much every day from when I was 10 to, gosh, when did I live in Ohio? Uh, 19? 19? 20? 19? 19. So like uh, roughly 10 years. And when I became an adult and I, I moved out on my own for the first time, I was able to set my own schedule. I had a pretty flexible job and I had a lot of control at my job over what I could do. They were very nice to me. And so for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a lot more control over my life when I moved out of my parents' house. And there was a day when I was living eight hours away in Columbus, Ohio. I'm from Philadelphia, where I, I realized I was just depressed and not suicidal. And I think it's because I was able to have more control in my life. I'd like to take note of how Monica talks about being able to have control over the flexibility within their life and how they worked with people who were quote-unquote very nice to them and how this is directly related to them experiencing less suicidal ideation. Already, I was starting to see how suicide has systemic roots, how forcing people to be rigid and not allowing for care is so harmful. Nonetheless, it requires one to have access to mental health care or just care in general. I asked Monica about their experience with this access. Well, it's difficult. <laughs> in America, I will say in America, we are in America. It's difficult because there's this vicious cycle of most people who have mental illnesses tend to not be able to hold steady jobs, which means they, you know, may not have insurance or if they have insurance through the government, it still doesn't cover everything. For example, here's just some costs. I chose the most proactive government healthcare plan that I could afford. When I go inpatient, it's $17.50, and that's relatively cheap, and that's for five days. And luckily, this particular plan doesn't charge me extra for extra days, because sometimes they don't, they usually don't let you out after five days. <laughs> they let you out after like seven to nine. But then the ambulance also is like usually maybe like 175 and then the emergency room, which you have to go through most of the time, is 400 I mean, already that's, it's so much. And that's just for a week. I'm a freelance musician. A lot of times that's more than my, like what I make in a month. So it's really rough financially. I'm a freelance musician because... I need the flexibility. I'm not able to work a nine to five job or even like a retail job, partially because I'm autistic and just because it's very difficult for me to be doing those things for a long time. I'm in school right now, but I've been in school for 10 years on and off. And really right now, this is the best I can do financially. And I have to always be in the mindset of saving money in case I have to go inpatient because it is more than one month's salary. And I'm lucky that I even have a job because a lot of people don't have jobs. And I mean, then it becomes even trickier because then hospitals, like, you know, they come after you. Monica also talked about the challenges of being admitted to a hospital or psychiatric facility. Sometimes the answer is to seek inpatient help. 
And this is tricky because there's two kinds of ways you can end up impatient. You can end up voluntarily or involuntarily. Involuntarily, I think it goes on your legal record and it kind of bars you from doing some things. What Monica just said about how you're barred from doing some things because you are getting help for suicidal ideation frightened me. It made me think about how carceral and punitive having suicidal thoughts can be. This is also something that I talked to Avanti about. Avanti is 25 years old and uses they-she pronouns. They are an immigrant artist and first-year clinical social work student at Columbia University. Avanti actually mentioned to me that even saying committed suicide is carceral because it's like committing a crime, which is why you'll hear her say, died by suicide. I was grateful to hear this perspective, and I'm going to be much more mindful of the language that I use around it going forward. Here's some of Avanti's story, which starts with how they feel when they hear the word suicide. When I first hear it, just like a somatic response is this like heaviness on my chest. And I think like that comes from a lot of different places. I've had some experience with being somebody who deals with chronic suicidal ideation, as well as someone who has attempted and has been involuntarily psychiatrically incarcerated for it. So, you know, just kind of like sitting with that heaviness right in my chest, it takes me back to when I was 18, I just moved to the US and I was here alone. And when I mean I was here alone, like I didn't move here with family. And it was a pretty difficult time to just navigate like being an immigrant, moving here and having certain expectations for, you know, my family to meet with. And also just being here alone, like I'd never been without community. I'd never been without family. This is the first time I was also 18. So like I'm trying to like navigate what it means to be an 18 year old. I was also raised pretty sheltered, I would say, because like, you know, I come from a South Asian, South Indian family. I grew up predominantly in Bangalore. And then moving here to Washington, D.C. was a completely new time for me. And I also realized that the first week of college, I actually found out that someone who I'd known for a big part of my life actually died by suicide. And I don't think I necessarily understood the heaviness of it at that point until days went on and I struggled with my own depression and suicidal ideation. And then about like eight or nine months after I had newly immigrated here, I also did attempt. And what I was met with at that time, and a big reason that it kind of snowballed to that, was because mental health services just in general were so lacking. I was turned away from a lot of places when I was seeking help. I didn't necessarily have the insurance to go to a provider beyond what the university provided. And the university would always say that they were at capacity. They didn't really have people to help me. So Already, there was like a systemic failure in meeting like some of my needs. 
And then it led to me having an attempt and then people telling me, oh, we'll take you to the hospital. This is where like you will get the help you need, but not really explaining what that meant. Like, what does it mean to go to the hospital for like a psychiatric issue as well as like, what does it mean to go to the hospital right after you have had an attempt? Like nobody explained that to me. But then I actually had the police literally take me to the hospital. So just kind of knowing that, just the way that folks who have attempted, you're already met with, first of all, so many barriers to any form of care before you get to that point. And then after you get there, you're treated as somebody who needs to be basically like besides the handcuffs. Like I went to the hospital in a police car. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's some of the heaviness that I'm sitting with is just sort of remembering some of the ways in which I was met with this like quote unquote system of care that you're supposed to receive when you're at the lowest point in your life. So yeah, and just besides my own experience with suicide, something else that kind of comes to mind is Well, two things. One is that later on, after a few years and after all of this happened, one, I was like kind of forced to tell my parents that this had happened. And just sort of remembering the way that my dad reacted to it. It was also around the time when Robin Williams passed away because of suicide. And he was like, oh, you've been reading too much about it in the news. Like... You know, you've been influenced by this. Like, I'm sure you're fine. Like, it's really nothing. But also to then learn that, like, my dad himself had some attempts when I was much younger. And that was something that really wasn't talked about much in the family. But I just heard about it in, like, a passing comment. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, wait, hold on. None of this makes sense. Like, especially because, like, yeah. Just hearing the way that I was met with the reaction after they found out about my situation, it was just really surprising to hear it a few years later. Just hearing Avanti's experience, coupled with Monica's experience, made me so sad. I was sad because I just spoke to two human beings who were being punished for being human. Punished legally and emotionally. Shame for what they did not cause. And I was also sad because I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised that what I pictured for a psychiatric facility felt sterile and cold, similar to how both Monica and Avanti described their experience. There was no care, no warmth. Access to care failed Avanti from the beginning in college. This was something I also spoke to Henry Ling about. Henry is 28 years old and uses he-him pronouns. He's a software engineer in the Bay Area, and he grew up in New Jersey. His mom is from Taiwan. His dad is from Malaysia, and he was born in Japan and sees himself as a third culture kid. Like many Asians that are seen as the model minority, he had a lot of pressure from his parents to achieve in school and felt love from his parents was conditional on grades and achievement, a lot of which contributed to suicidal ideation. Henry talks about how his own struggle started in college, the stigma about getting therapy, and how the university he was at didn't have the best mental health care access either. I would say that I've struggled with suicide ideation in the past. The earliest I can kind of remember is probably in college. I was dealing with a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, both externally and also coming from myself. And the stress kind of built up and kind of 
got to a point where, you know, I felt suicidal for a little bit of time. That was kind of when I started seeking therapy and like trying to understand myself better. But that was probably, I think, the most prominent and probably one of the longer stretches of time where, you know, I felt like committing suicide was like an option that was available to me. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, When you thought to seek therapy, were you scared to do that? Did you feel any stigma about that? Or were you kind of ready to go and do it? I felt a lot of stigma behind it, actually. And I was definitely not ready to do it either. I kind of built it up to be this thing where like, I just didn't want to admit that there was an issue with myself. And I was so confident that I could kind of like figure things out and intellectualize things myself. What actually kind of convinced me is that a very close friend said that she was really worried about me. Um, and then she asked me, like, please seek help for me, if not for yourself. And that was kind of what convinced me that, like, I really should go get help. So this was during college. And I think a lot of people have kind of mixed experiences with, like, college therapy. I feel like schools are overwhelmed with the number of students that they can really help at any given time. So it kind of felt to me that the mental health environment was more like kind of get people to a place where there would be like stable. And then, you know, you got to help the next student after that. So for me personally, it kind of helped me just like get out what was on my mind. And it kind of got me to like that kind of stable place and helped me understand myself a little bit better. But I was still struggling, you know, with mental health for years following. Henry has sought out therapy again in the past year, which has been helpful. But he also turned to the internet for support. I think like a lot of young kind of nerdy men, the first place that you kind of go to for like your comfort space is the internet. That was my experience. I think for me, there was like a lot of different communities to kind of look at. When I was in college, the internet was like a much younger place. YouTube was like a lot newer. And so the communities weren't as great then, but I feel like now as the internet's gotten like a lot bigger and a lot more normalized. There's one community, one YouTube channel called Healthy Gamer that I watch quite a bit, um, which is basically a psychiatrist who talks to Twitch streamers and other influencers and is like kind of able to verbalize some of the issues with like social media and then just like issues of self-worth that people face nowadays. So that has been helpful for me lately in kind of understanding myself better kind of helping to like put words to some of the feelings that I have. I think the internet has been really great in some ways and that like it really connects people. But I feel like in some ways it's also like kind of made people like a lot more isolated and kind of just like in their own head and their own home a lot. And sometimes the internet isn't like always a great place to find support. There's a lot of like weird communities, like, you know, there's like insult communities and like places where people feel validated, but aren't necessarily making steps to improve their lives in the healthiest way, I feel. So I feel like there's been like kind of a missing space for people to feel validated in kind of a healthy way and be able to like grow themselves in a way that makes them happier in the long run. I asked Henry what he thought that missing piece could look like aside from going to therapy. I think some kind of like peer mentoring, which is a thing that I saw in college, but don't really see as an adult is also something that's like really helpful as well. I think that the inclusion of just like more role models or like supportive people in your life who also hold you accountable is kind of missing. And there's not really like a formal system for that. Yeah, definitely. And like people who don't feel like you have to be in competition with them because there's so many instances, like especially in school and then even in, you know, jobs 
where there's this feeling of competition. So to me, mentoring isn't about being competitive. It's about validating that lack of self-worth people often feel. It's about validating that like we're in this together, essentially. That's a really good point. I think that there's like a lack of people who you can kind of say, like, have your best interest in mind. Whenever you get support from someone, you know, it always kind of feels like they might have something in mind for themselves as well. Especially like, you know, if your peers are people that you're competing against for like a job or, you know, some class or something, it can be hard to get support from those people. And so like, yeah, just like having someone who you know you can go to and like will have your best interest in mind is something that's like really hard to find, I think. The idea of competition reminded me of the pressures for Asians to be this model minority and how harmful that can be. I asked Avanti about the model minority myth specifically. Group, there's this idea that's been sold, especially in the United States that, or North America, I should say, that, you know, Asians are a model minority. So when you kind of look at that and you think about class and then you think about suicide, how do you relate all of that together when it comes specifically to Asians as a group at large, which is like a lot of different intersections? Yeah, I'm really glad that you did mention that, you know, <laughs> it's hard to sometimes speak for the Asian community because it's huge, right? And like, we're all sort of like lumped together. And now we're like, okay, how do we navigate this? But I think like just reflecting on like how I had even felt when I first moved here, like I felt like I bought that whole model minority thing. I was given these messages that like I had to like quote unquote succeed like within whatever I was thrown at and anything of weakness as in like anything if I couldn't handle it would be seen as weakness and I couldn't really like ask for help because I'm here to make sure that like my family feels proud about their decision of like having me come to the US. And then secondly, then being here, just like already I had internalized this thing that, oh, Indians here are quote unquote successful. And I was pretty much like around a lot of white people. And I remember like a conversation I had with my mom when I first moved here, but she was just like, oh, you need to like make sure that you're really representing like India really well here. And I was like, I don't even know what the hell that means. But I was like, I don't know what you mean by that. But like, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to represent India here as like a student, like as a good student, uh, whatever that means. But I felt a lot of pressure to just not be quote unquote weak or definitely to succeed whatever that means and the worst thing for me was like having to ask for help or having to like even pause school for a little bit because that's not something we do right like that's not something that we're supposed to do so yeah so that's something that definitely does come to mind but I also think just like in the greater sense like I do have folks who are from different parts of the Asian community. And something that we have talked about is also just the lack of access to care, which is more like culturally specific or like folks like actually understand like what's happening in our families. Like some of the stuff, like 
you cannot really talk to your parents about like a lot of times like what I was met with was like why don't you just tell your parents what's going on but that's not the support that I necessarily needed at that time and I felt like a lot of my Asian friends that I've talked to about it are like well there isn't really this sort of care that understands us or that understands our families or understands where we're coming from, understands some of the pressures that are put on us, right? So yeah, so that sort of also comes to mind when you bring up model minority and mental health care and suicide. I really liked the connection, or maybe misconnection, that Avanti made between being a model minority and the lack of culturally specific care. Monica had talked about this, too, in the context of why saying just go see a therapist or psychiatrist is problematic. You know, it can be very hard to find a psychiatrist, period. A lot of psychiatrists have waiting periods of three to six months. And I live in an area, I mean, I live outside Philadelphia. There's This is a, the sixth biggest city in the U.S. Like, I can't even imagine living in a more rural place. And the good psychiatrists, in my experience, don't take insurance. My therapist also doesn't take insurance. And the reason being is because they don't want to deal with the paperwork. I'm very lucky that my therapist just accepts the copay that I would have paid if I had insurance. But the ways that people sometimes seek treatment for uh, medication-related treatment is they will go through the inpatient process just to see a psychiatrist because you get to see one immediately. Usually you see a psychiatrist within a day instead of six months. But like I said before, that can be very expensive. And so there's just really no good way. I mean, a lot of well-intentioned people will say, you know, why don't you just go see a therapist? Why don't you just go see a psychiatrist? It's like your problems are here now and the solution is three to six months in the future. And that's so much time to reconcile And that can be devastating. I mean, in that time, instead of getting like, you know, moderate level care that people should have access to that will prevent them from going to that acute level of care, what will happen is people will start to, they'll go to the acute level of care, go inpatient just to see a psychiatrist, and then they'll pop them right back out with no actual like talk therapy because that's not something that happens inpatient generally. And then because their long-term issues are not being worked on, they'll end up back in inpatient. And so it's just this brutal cycle of like, you just have to like be lucky and find someone or you get stuck in the cycle. And then the added bonus of being, you know, a person of color, but especially a person whose parents are immigrants, is that not every therapist or psychiatrist is going to understand your culture, not even like, just like the cultural pressures that the immigrant families kind of develop, I guess. Um, like, they don't understand how you can be grateful in one way for your upbringing, but also at the same time, that exact upbringing has caused you a lifetime, a whole childhood of trauma, a childhood lost. Like, and it's, it's hard because I live in a primarily white area, and I'm very lucky that I have a psychiatrist who is Indian, and my, my therapist is white, but she gets it, and she understands that she doesn't understand everything. Um, that's what I appreciate about her, but I've had, before I found her, I had a whole slew of therapists who didn't get it, 
and didn't get that not everyone has the nuances of like knowing that your parents, you know, the whole stereotype of like the tiger mom and, and everything. I, I had that to a T tiger parents and my specialties were violin and math. So like very much to a T and people don't understand like therapists ask me like, well, why did you do it if you didn't want to do it? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like I had to. And it, it's just, it's a little bit like dating. You want to see if it'll work out. But then when it doesn't, you're like, damn, I just spent three months and all that money on that one therapist who really didn't get me. And now I got to start over with someone new. And it's costly financially, but also emotionally. What Monica said gave me pause. It made me take a deep breath at how exhausting and trying it is just to get help without bankrupting yourself. And it made me think about other ways we can help each other. I asked Monica what a friend can do to support someone in need. If you're talking to someone who is having those feelings, asking them, one, if they're safe, two, if they want to talk and you just listen, if they want a distraction, or if they want advice. And I think distinguishing, like making sure you know what your role is in the conversation is super important because if someone is trying to open up to you and they just want someone to listen and they don't want advice, like it can be very damaging to hear, like even if it's, you know, well-intentioned advice, sometimes that's just not what they need. I really like that set of questions. Do you need me to listen? Would you like advice or would you like a distraction? Oftentimes, especially if someone is talking about suicide, it's easy to fall into urgency or savior mode. We might feel it's our responsibility to save them, but I think it's our responsibility to care. And caring means listening. It means offering options. It means asking for consent, something I'll talk about with therapist Melody Lee later in this episode. Not only can this be comforting to the person who is coming to you, I think it can be empowering. Care can be as individual as it can be systemic. After all, there are so many systemic factors that are at the root of suicide in the first place. I asked Avanti what they thought about it and what they think about suicide prevention. Like, we need to talk about systemic issues that create the need for folks to feel or struggle with some of the mental health issues or mental illnesses or like a need that's just not being met. So like we need to think about that to begin with, which is not necessarily addressed. A lot of it now is also just lack of access to any form of care. And that doesn't only mean within the mental health industrial complex, because the type of care that's provided there is also adjacent to policing, or it is adjacent to being harmful, or it is harmful itself. But also a lot of like lack of connection to traditional practices or the lack of being able to be a part of community, you know, as we just talked about within operating from like a model minority concept, right? So it's a lot of different things, which has just made us more disconnected and more alone. And when it comes to more of the mainstream suicide prevention work that's being done, which is around hotlines or nonprofits, 
a lot of it, again, caters to this like individualistic idea of care. And most of the times, the only solution that's given to you is wait, like A, like what you're feeling right now isn't as bad. So, you know, we'll just try to like hold you off or like go to a therapist. And I can talk a little bit more about why that's also a very harmful response. Or B is like, okay, it's gotten really bad to a point where somebody has made an attempt. And the only form of care that you're met with is either being involuntarily hospitalized. And again, just going back to like how that's also done, you know, you might even have police contact, especially like if you're like black or brown, there is a chance of police contact being a part of that equation when you are actually trying to access care. So prevention to me is essentially non-existent because there's just so much that needs to go into prevention that folks are not necessarily focusing on. Also just building stronger communities and even like just thinking about like, okay, if somebody is suicidal in your friend group, you're still going to defer to some of these resources because that's the only thing that's out there. But that's not necessarily going to really help somebody because even after somebody goes to hospital, like statistically, I can't remember the specific months after coming out from the hospital, but there is a time frame, which is actually the highest chance for somebody to die by suicide. The hospital really doesn't do much. <laughs> so there needs to be a layered conversation around like what prevention work is. And to me, I think that it's really important to root it within the principles of abolition, within the principles of community care, and within the principles of actually looking at care like way beyond going to a therapist. And just to touch on the fact of like going to a therapist as a solution that a lot of people give, one, therapists are not really either equipped to help somebody who's suicidal because they're also going to default to some of the resources that are already existing, which are already harmful. And two, access to therapists is not something a lot of people have. And therapists also could be very harmful as being entities who are state adjacent or do practice policing in their own way. So it's not necessarily the quote unquote solution that people often default to, even though like, yes, there's some things that therapists do. And I, you know, I myself am training to be a therapist, but I think it's really important for even folks like me who are training to remember that the goal should always be trying to come out from the system and not really support. Again, I'm doing air quotes and this is bad for a podcast, but um, like not really quote unquote, like support people by getting them to go through this like really violent system. Avanti made so many incredible points. While, as she said, she's training to be a therapist, Avanti hopes to disrupt oppressive practices, including the professionalization of care, and hopes to envision a world rooted in the principles of abolition, joy, and community care. And I am all for this. Which leads me to the conversation I had with therapist Melody Lee. 
Melody Lee, who uses any pronoun, is a colony-born migrant and diasporic settler on Turtle Island. They are a queer therapist of color, mental health liberation activist, and keynote speaker. They founded Inclusive Therapists at www.inclusivetherapists.com, a social justice-oriented mental health directory and community that celebrates and centers marginalized communities, especially the BIPOC and LGBTQIA Two-Spirit Plus intersection. Melody offers collective care and education focusing on decolonizing mental health and healing racialized trauma. All I can say about this conversation is that Melody modeled the type of therapy and truly just support that I feel is missing from the conversation. Let's just say that at the end of our conversation, I was so relaxed and comforted by their level of care, thoughtfulness, and decolonized approach. Hi, Melody. Thank you so much for being on Migrations. We're so honored to have you here. Um, can you just start off by telling a little bit about your story and, you know, how you came to do what you do and be who you are? Hi, Nisha. Thank you so much for having me. Such an honor. My story leads back to me and my people. And my people is from a place called Hong Kong. And I was born and grew up in colonized Hong Kong while it was a British colony. Up until 1997, which surprises people because when we talk about colonization, a lot of times people think it is something historical or ancient, but actually this is very recent. And so my lineage story is I'm from a lineage of fisher people before our habitat was destroyed through colonialism. My paternal name means child of the tree. My maternal name means forest. And so forests, trees, being with the land and nature is something that is in our name, in our souls and spirits. And when the British colonized Hong Kong, there is drastic exploitation, not only of people and labor, but also of land and resources. And in that destruction, I'm remembering when I first made this connection that what replaced our trees, what filled in our water is buildings, concrete. So Hong Kong became a concrete jungle that was used as a trading port for the British. So I remember vividly making this connection. If trees are so important to our lineage and that was destroyed and tall skyscraper took their place, what is that impact on the well-being and the mental well-being of me, my relatives, my ancestors? Which does tie into the conversation we're having today about suicide, because I have close family members that committed suicide. And one of them is my aunt that, you know, content warning suicidality, jumped off a building. And so for me, that is a very direct way of seeing what happens when we are disconnected from our ways of being and are forced to survive and are expected to thrive in these environments that are dehumanizing and also where the soul and the spirit has been sapped and there is attempts of erasure of our cultures. 
So that is just one example of actually several examples of suicide in my immediate familial circle. Wow. Yeah, the connection there between the lineage and between that and what happened is so strong. And I had chills in my body when you said that. And I'm so glad you started with your story because, you know, so often we isolate mental health from ourselves in a way, like, you know, thinking about what our story has to do with it. And some of us don't know what that story is. Myself, my father was very closed off about his family. I like literally know barely anything about his parents or anything. And, you know, there's a part of me that feels a little disconnected, but I didn't feel that way even 10 years ago because I just wasn't as conscious of it, though I realized that that has probably affected me and affected the little home he had in the middle of Mumbai to me sitting in Los Angeles right now, you know. So I really do appreciate that context and talking about how the topic of suicide is so close to you and talking about the colonization of Hong Kong directly and how that's related. And then it also makes me think about how within different Asian communities, which of course are like a lot of communities, it's not just one. Asia is a very large, nuanced continent. Um, it does make me think about how mental health is stigmatized. It makes me think about the ways colonization has affected our mental health. So how has that shown up for you in your professional and personal practice? Hmm. When I think about my personal practice, I start from the place of self, like who is the self that's entering into the practice and through the process of, you know, colonialism. And I know that many, many of, you know, folks listening today people with Asian backgrounds came from colonized places. And I first had to learn and to understand how that shows up in me, how I embody that. And so even as a child, without even knowing terminology like classism, right, cis-heteronormativity, white supremacy, I was taught that. I was indoctrinated that throughout my education, through colonized Christianity. And I not only internalized it, but I essentially worshipped it. I worshipped Eurocentric ways of being. And that is what me and my people had to do to survive, right? This is historical and intergenerational trauma to embody white supremacy in a non-white body. And so I carried that with me into school, uh, learning to become a therapist where I was trained in a very so-called Western way of Eurocentric ideology, curriculum, you know, colleagues, professors, majority white. I think that's many of our stories. And so I didn't really have space to unpack, heal, and dismantle these harmful ways of being within myself. And so my journey towards decolonizing my practice, decolonizing mental health, has been firstly a process of reckoning what I've internalized and seeking healing in community. And sometimes that requires folks that are a little bit further on along in the journey to hold up a mirror and say, hey, Mel, did you recognize this? Where is this coming from? And 
the most healing thing for me, and this is connected to what you're sharing, Nisha, is going back to the stories that colonized mental health care focuses on the symptom and diagnosis and pathology, whereas decolonized perspectives, and this is something that my kin Gabe Torres talks about a lot, is returning back to the story, how we've always known how to care for one another, tend to one another, and to connect by sitting around a fire or sitting around food and sharing stories. And as I was doing that more in community, then I started to get it. I started to go, oh, this is connecting. And I started to also become critically minded towards what I've studied, the ways that I've practiced, and the ways that I uphold and perpetuate harmful colonial ideology as well. So I'm still very much on this healing and dismantling journey. And also with reconnecting, reclaiming ways of healing that are Native or Indigenous to me and my people. You know, I so appreciate you talking about your story because I feel like there's this narrative that therapists don't, you know, put their personal story in the situation. Like there's this almost like I'm talking to this objective robot or I don't know, something, you know, and I have often felt that that is such a it is such a colonized perspective. Even myself as a coach, I cannot help but talk about my story. It's almost like how else can I relate to you unless I talk a little bit about myself? And it makes me think about therapy in general and how decontextualizing ourselves can actually be harmful to who we're working with. Yes, 100%. And when I ask myself, why, why are we taught in this system to be unbiased, non-judgmental, which are complete myths, it's impossible for human beings to be non-judgmental and unbiased, or to be blank slates, what is the original intent? And the intent is for providers to uphold positions of power, because the less that service users get to know our stories. Meanwhile, they're sharing theirs and their most vulnerable parts, then wow, that really elevates the provider's position of power and also puts us at risk of violating or exploiting our power. And so by us also meeting folks in a humanized way that I'm human, just like you, You have a story, as I do. My aim is to flatten that hierarchy and to say, you know, you also, you know, speaking to service users, you also have the choice of who to work with. And in order for people to have true informed consent, they deserve to know who their therapist is. I love how Melody talks about consent here. So often we hear consent in the context of sex, sexual assault, and rape. But as I mentioned before, consent is a way to empower and to help others feel seen and to let them know they have choices. Melody talks more about this. Offering transparency, at least of our identities, of our values, then empowers the service users to choose and also to voice up if there are things that they may disagree with or that doesn't sit well with them. 
and hopefully to enter into an equitable, trusting, healing, reciprocal relationship. I asked Melody how to approach someone who has suicidal ideation from a vantage of care instead of treating someone as a symptom of a pathology. The first thing that I lead with is to remove the policing from our therapeutic relationship. And when I hear stigma, especially when spoken in connection to Asians and mental health, I often find that we are blamed. Like Asians have stigma in their communities. And I push back and I would say, who stigmatized whom? Who first stigmatized our ways of being and ways of healing? And secondly, for communities of color, indigenous communities, the field of psychology has been used to police, to exploit, and to punish indigenous peoples and people of color, people of diaspora. So by removing the policing, so that means reassuring the service user that this stays between us, that I honor the sacredness of our therapeutic relationship, that I'm not going to report to some institution that's going to remove you from your home, then we're creating space where we can dive into what the distress is. And the distress, when working with service users, I would love to explore the many ways that that shows up. It can be somatic. It can be embodied. It can be in dreams. It can be connected to lineage, to, again, historical and intergenerational trauma. It can be relational. It could be so, so many different things. But until we get to slow down and look at how these factors are connected, then there tends to lack that tending to and that care that is really important in those moments. And so what pathology does and what policing does is it speeds things up. It creates urgency and it's reductive where if someone is considering ending their life, this is the time to pay utmost care and to slow it all the way down and to say, I'm going to stay here with you if you will allow me to. Yeah, because I think when we think of someone who wants to attempt or has ideation, we're like, this is urgent. You know, we need to take care of this now because this person might end their life, and which is really scary. And I had never thought about seeing it from a decolonized perspective because I feel like a sense of urgency is one of the characteristics of white supremacy culture. And by slowing it down, it's really giving respect to that process. And I never, yeah, I never really thought about it that way because it does feel like something that's so urgent, but at the same time, how much are we then assimilating to the culture again by being that way? Even when you think about like suicide hotlines, it's like, because this is urgent, call this hotline, you know? So yeah, that's really, really insightful. Yes, thank you. And when I hear the word fear, I get curious. Who's fearful? Whose fear is that? Are we projecting our fear? And what is the fear of? That we would fail as practitioners? That we would get in trouble? That this would be a liability situation? Like, let's be honest about that, right? And so in those moments when tenderness is what's needed and oftentimes is undoing the loneliness, right? That suicide is 
often such a lonely experience. That takes time. And are we as practitioners in those moments willing to, yes, honor the process, but especially honor that person and their life and say, you are so worthy and I'm not going to jump to my next appointment. Say, I will be with you if you will let me, if you are willing. When Melody talks about missing the next appointment, my shoulders raised and my neck tightened a bit. This just shows how much urgency plagues all of us, which can often compromise care. I asked Melody more about how suicide prevention can look from a decolonized perspective, especially as it relates to community care. I love that question. I love talking about community care. I see myself as a provider when I am in the therapeutic setting with service users, and even more so when we're not in session together. I think that's where, for myself, where the true work really takes place, which is to get involved, to mobilize, and to advocate, and to dismantle these oppressive systems, these structures that causes tremendous stress and shame and rage within especially bodies that have been marginalized. And so that's part of the work is, you know, advocating for land back, indigenous sovereignty, black liberation, LGBTQ plus justice, disability justice. Like if these liberations unfold and manifest, then wouldn't we just all feel a lot better? Like that would be just beautiful. So that's kind of the bigger macro work. Then there's also community building, getting to know the communities, getting to understand communities that already exist, ways to support service users that desire to be in community and so that they can feel empowered to heal in relationship, to heal through rituals and ways of being that align with them and their cultures. And so there's a constant learning that I would have to do and actually connecting, chatting with folks and exchanging ideas. And so creating these webs of care for service users and within the therapeutic setting, that collective care is a topic that we revisit time and time again. It's not a one-time conversation. It's not a, well, you know, this is what I learned in grad school. Well, what is your support system? <laughs> and then jotting that down, but is continuing to revisit. What is a way that you have played in community recently? What's a way that you have shared meals in community recently? What's a way that you have created and tapped into your creative part in community recently? Because the more connected we are, then when it comes to suicide ideation, then we already know that folks are going to come around in these established communities and relationships. And that will also reduce that panic and urgency in those moments to say, we're going to come around you. I know that you're in distress, but you're going to be okay. Remember all of these people that you make connections with. So that therapeutic relationship is also decentering myself. Let's say I am not the one to ensure that 
you choose not to end your life? Like that's, first of all, not my choice to make. And second of all, that I am only one of hopefully, you know, many areas of support. And so integrating these conversations throughout our time together is something that I am learning to intentionally do more of. I also asked about the stereotypes of the tiger mom and the model minority myth in relation to so many Asian cultures that have a history of being more collectivist. Well, let's start with the tiger mom (laughs) because I kind of had one. My mom's healing right alongside me. So when cultures and peoples are exploited, that creates a sense of scarcity. And it's a true scarcity. There is just less to go around when people in power hoard, right? Which leads to competition, which is one of the symptoms of colonialism. And so when folks through Western lenses look at Asian cultures, many East Asian cultures, I'm speaking for me and my people, thinking, wow, They are so competitive because we have to be. Schools are competitive. Everything becomes competitive. Even things that are supposed to be soul-nourishing, like music becomes competitive. Art becomes competitive. I remember that from my upbringing in Hong Kong, where I did an art project that I really liked, but I didn't think the teacher would like it. So I scrapped it and created a new one that I think they would like better, but it really wasn't for me. And so we also see that there is a much higher rate of children and teenagers that, unfortunately, I want to put this sensitively, they're not equipped to cope with these highly competitive situations and cultures and do end their lives, right? And this, unfortunately, I'm more familiar with, you know, East Asian cultures, but it's prominent and it's problematic. Competitiveness also leads to bullying, for example. And so that also turns into parenting. So parents become competitive. And so when I hear these stereotypes, I become critical and I'll go, how did this begin? Have our people always been this way? Is this a virtue and a value? And I have to push back and go, this can't be a virtue or a value because this actually causes ruptures in relationships. It causes ruptures between one and self and our well-being. So this isn't something that we wanted. How did this begin? So the model minority myth is kind of a whole big other topic. And I will just say that I have a lot of compassion for Asian siblings, relatives, kin that have been pressured or expected or demanded to ascribe to the model minority myth and that I do not shame people. (laughs) I come with compassion and go, I get it that you also have to do this not only to survive, but also to remain in connection with your family, with your communities. And I wish for liberation and healing for you so that we can have more authentic relationship with ourselves and one another and also, you know, multicultural interconnections as well.
I can't thank Monica, Avanti, Henry, and Melody enough for their vulnerability and insights. That conversation I had with Melody at the end truly summed up so much of what others were saying they needed from therapists, whether it was explicit or not. This also reminded me of a conversation I had with Dr. Jennifer Mullen from Decolonizing Therapy. I interviewed her for my Healing and Justice newsletter, The Healing Hype. I'll leave a link of the interview in the show notes. I have been lucky enough that therapists I've seen are therapists of color who've also shared parts of themselves with me. But these conversations really made me wonder about what hierarchy and power they still held while being in their role. And all of this makes me think of how so many people are dealing with not feeling worthy, mental illness, having to save all of their money just in case they have to go to the hospital, which might end up being harmful to them anyway. It is daunting and terrible, and this is how we have to find big and small ways to decolonize, which ultimately starts with looking at existing structures, questioning them, and having conversations with each other about how we are taking action within ourselves and with others to dismantle it. And of course, how are we healing on our own and in community from the intergenerational trauma we all inherit, one way or another, from white supremacy, capitalism, and colonization? For me, this looks like learning about my own internalized colonization, listening to BIPOC, queer, and disabled folks, and supporting others in their healing process. With that being said, I invite you to check out my Healing and Justice newsletter, The Healing Hype, where I ponder, provide advice, meditations, and several workshops a year for $12 a month or $120 a year. Head to www.thehealinghype to subscribe. And if you'd like to explore working with me one-on-one, head to my website, nishaland.com, and click Work With Me. I'd love to chat with you about how I can best support you or refer you to someone who might be a better fit. Like I said, I'm here to support you and also offer my own experience because I'm not better than anyone. I just want to care and be in solidarity for healing and liberation. I said it before and I'm going to say it again. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you can head over and give it a five-star rating. Thank you so much to my creative talent that helped me on this episode. Thanks to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art. Thanks to Shin Kawasaki for the Migrations song, Find Another Way. Music was also provided via CC Mixture by Airtone with the song Resonance. And thank you to Quincy Surasmith for editing this episode. And of course, I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you to my brother Shaline, Gina Manila, and Dahlia Gehan for your generous support. Thanks to all my Patreon patrons. Remember, you could support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash migrations. This is Nisha Modi. And I'm signing off with the most tender and loving care for all of you, my listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.